SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergi, and we are looking at the fifth and, although it says final episode, just like Friday the 13th, it's lying, Battles Without Honor and Humanity final episode from 1974, directed by Kinji Fukasaku, and written by Koji Takata, based off an original story by Koichi Yaboshi. Uh, with me is Thrasher. Oh, oh, look at the ass on that one. <laughs> and Alex? Shoza Hirono or Mr. Sparkle? Very good. Um, yeah, this has been quite the uh, elaborate uh, journey quest we've been taking on through these five films. I want to thank you so much for suggesting these, Alex. I don't think I ever would have thought of this uh, really except for, I mean, I think the first I really heard of these films was watching all all eight of the original cycle pop up on Amazon. We're just talking about five this time around. We might revisit the other ones later at some other point. But yeah. I thought, oh, this would be something different, kind of more highfalutin than what we do. But it's uh, Thrasher's wiggling his eyes. <laughs> well, I, I, you all, you all probably can't see this unless you're here with us live. But I've got, uh, got, I've got some sake here. I'm just gonna oh, send this off with the toast. Very good. I've got a Western sake. I've, I've got a, uh, I think what the Japanese called biru. Biru. Uh, yeah, I think um, I, I'm overjoyed that you guys like that you guys enjoyed him as much as he did. And um, plus for the simple fact that it would have sucked if you guys hated him <laughs> and went through five films of just like, ah, but, uh, but yeah, no, Not I'm glad of that. <laughs> yeah, that was a rough run. I, I really felt for you guys on that one. Um, I quite like, so I think saw is probably the closest thrasher has come to jumping out of a window while recording the show. <laughs> would you say, is that your low point? It was that, that it was rough. That was the, that was huh. the first time I, and really possibly only time I think I've ever I've ever regretted us tackling a particular series. And admittedly, it's not so much the quality, it's it's the length combined with the quality. Those two things dovetailed together to, to length, make length those is last... a big part. The one that got to me and it, it had uh, again little to do with the films themselves was uh, back to back we did Star Wars and Star Trek. Oh which yeah. comprised I think nearly three and a half months of our lives, which I, I enjoy those movies. My tat, you know, lot. my tattoos are Star Wars tattoos, but that's a lot. It's a lot. So, um, but speaking of a lot, you know, we're into final episode of Battles Without Honor and Humanity, and and the way the last one ended, um, the the fourth picture, it was well, police tactics. What a crazy name that is. Uh, in final episode, I I just love. Uh, the poster and but the ending of the what I'm trying to say is the ending of the prior film, it ended like on a really good note. Like they could have done no more movies in the series, and it's like, you know, these guys got what coming to them. The the head guy dudes are in prison of the different families, and they have you know you you hear as we mentioned on the sound design the wind the cold wind 
of the of the prison where they're stationed. And uh, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, what 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 was all the killing for? What was all the stuff for? These two men are alone in a cell, and uh, uh, ironically, you know, that first one started with um, a Hirono, uh, you know, in a jail cell, being sort of thrust into uh, being a made man through stuff that's not really in his own it's kind of happenstance really um, yeah it's, um and it's funny how it all got uh it, it seems like it all comes full circle at the end of um police tactics and that ending is so it's so potent and so great i mm. almost wish that was like the end cap of the final final episode because it, it's just so effective um of course the narrative won't allow that um but what i find really fascinating with the final episode is that you know walking into it, and i think i mentioned this with police tactics and i was like so yeah, one, two, three, bang, bang, bang. And I think that like, you know, with four, I thought it was going to run out of steam, quite the opposite. And I'm like, all right, five, like, you know how it is with sequels. It's the sequel cast. Um, you know, like by volume five, by Roman numeral five, no matter how good you are, you usually are are just kind of burning on fumes at that point. And still they, they, they keep it going. They have that, um, they really uh, kept the series going. They had the same momentum. And um what I really thought was cool and a really good way to kind of um, bookend the series was that it opens up with them marching in the memorial parade of the anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing, which is and so... the imagery of them of black and white footage with the red letters of the credits uh, over top of them, I think is really striking. And then the, the film goes to color when uh, they're done with the march and they're, they're blowing off steam at the, uh, at the izakaya or whatever the ramen place the the bar yeah and that kind of establishes like the it does have like the film has a very much uh like a much paler color palette like it's very much it's a lot of grays and black and whites and stuff um and it's very much a seasonal movie it's very summery um as you can tell the guys are all sweating and stuff like that well there's also a lot of full circle imagery when the the first movie begins in the immediate aftermath of the bomb and the the uh, American occupation of Japan. Here we end on a significant anniversary. There are some subtle bits of there's some subtle bits of dialogue that call back to the first movie. There's a I was shocked at, at how long it took before Hirano showed up again. I almost thought he wasn't going to show up again in this movie. And when he does, and you know, he's in prison, uh, a guy who got out before him, who's you know still in with the Yakuza, wants to have a secret meeting for him. So what happens? The guard comes by and goes, oh, Hirano, obviously you're having a great distress of the stomach. I better <laughs> take you to the doctor, which, which is just like the first movie. Yep. He, helps, like, he helps give a Yakuza great distress of the stomach so that he can get... <laughs> to the doctor and get out of jail early it's that's just like a wonderful little nod uh and and i've been thinking about why how why and how this this series continues to, to stay so fresh and vibrant and seems to keep covering new ground and be worth watching and i think it's largely because these movies were made so quick one after the other you uh one because obviously it's so fresh in the filmmaker's mind they're very aware of what ground they've covered what ground they haven't covered and what lingering threads can be mined for more drama but but two because like you're making these movies while the previous movies are probably still in theaters no, uh, yeah. you don't exactly know what the audience wants or what the audience likes about exactly. them. So you can't fall back on like sort of hollow. Well, if they liked it once, they'll love it twice sort of sequel, uh, sequel uh, making. 
I think it's um I think it's like a perfect marriage of I feel like the screenwriters um uh, Akazo Kasahara and um the uh, Ichiboshi dude I feel like they got like it's like I imagine them getting like this like fifty pound manuscript dumped on their desk being like here's a bunch of yakuza shit that happened you know for your movie and they're like whoa all right well um you know and I feel like you know we every volume like we've always said in each episode for each film is so loaded and so packed. And I think that it was kind of this serendipitous that the first one was so successful. And then they got to elaborate on all these intricate, fascinating real life stories to, to explore in the, in the in subsequent films. I'm reminded a bit of an interview I, I, I saw years ago with uh, Blake Edwards, who did all, uh, you know, like the first 10 pink Panther movies. We should do those in the show. That'd be fun. Oh, but, yeah. um, in an interview, they're asking him, well, why did you do so many Pink Panther movies? And he said, well, the answer is a simple one. The first one made a lot of money. So <laughs> the second one, they continued to make a lot of money. And as uh, as the saying goes, it's show business, not show show. <laughs> right. Or, or if you're talking about Japanese films, show showa or, or whatever. But it, it's uh, one of the, you know, these things are so popular. They're, they're cramming out, what, like one or two of these a year? Uh, and and the audiences keep on coming. I mean, what what really shocked me? We talked about this a little bit before we started recording, uh, guys. But um, look at the filmography of uh, Kinji Fukusaku, the director. After he did uh, final episode, later that same year, he came out with new battles without honor and humanity. Yeah, <laughs> right. Film fun. Like, yeah, <laughs> what what a final episode. Right, and it's so, funny because like they're not. They're not like weak films or not or like little like spin-offs. Like they're solid movies. They're intriguing. But they're like anthology movies like Buntasugar is in him, but he's not playing shows of Hirono. Like each film oh, is a different dude almost. Um yeah. but again, they're just I feel like they just have so much material to work off of and they're totally consistent with all the other um Yakuza papers flicks and, and they're they're solid. They're that's good stuff. But um Oh my gosh, I had it did not click until now. He directed Message from Space. Yeah, and the Green Slime. Stuff. Oh, I love the Green Slime. It's got mm. one of the best songs ever. It, it's an amazing American, uh, Japanese, and I believe Korean uh, co-production. And yep. yeah, it has this the most amazing acid rock <laughs> theme song for a sci-fi movie. The Green Slime! <laughs> that sounds better than the theme song to the original version of The Blob. Or it's like by Bert Bacharach. It goes, it creeps, it sleeps, it goes around. It's the blob. It's, oh, it's a mambo. Beware of the blob. It, it's, it's like a, a Scooby Doo. Beware of the blob. Yeah. It's uh, anyhow. Um, <laughs> I mean, if the blob had come into the Yakuza papers movies, that would be something different entirely. Picture yeah, sequel. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll put a pin in that one. But <laughs> the 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 big driving plot of a lot of this film is something you see in a lot of other gangster films in which these, uh, you know, the, the mafia, all the different gangs, in this case, the, the Yakuza in Japan, um, is can only sustain themselves for so long. At some point, they have to, they try to go legitimate in some way or another. And in this, they actually become a political uh, party of some sort. Well, that, that's that's what something that I, I love so much is that at this point, they are pretty much legitimate businessmen, but they're mm -hmm. so prone to falling back on old Yakuza tactics. And that's really what drives the conflict of this movie. You know, they 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 are pretty they're pretty much old, retired, re nearing retiring age businessmen. But of course, anyone who joins the organization 
wants to do all the sexy, violent Yakuza stuff, and they have such a hard time keeping their young men in line. There's right, a lot like, of uh, old men slapping young men in this picture. <laughs> and um, this is the first movie, because it starts out after the war in the 40s, and then we're in the mid-60s, and um, this is the first uh, film of the series where they actually visibly age the actors. You know, you see Makihara's got some gray hair, Yamamori's, like, retired, um, you know, um, Ichioka's, uh, you know, got some got some grays there, too. And it's just funny because, like you said, they're semi-legitimate, you know, um, corporations and companies and what have you, but it's like, you know, when it comes push to shove, it's like, well, we could either do the legit thing or we could do what we know, which is, you know, shoot people, stab people, and break some, you know, <laughs> limbs and, and, and do all that. And also, which, like you said, keeping the youngsters in, in line. And speaking of which, this this movie, the, the violence continues to shock uh, and astound in this one. And this movie really has it in for people's feet. Oh, I know. The spear gun, again, going back to the, like, the, the occasional humor you get in these movies. And uh, what is it? They spot um, one of the bosses, and these guys are like, it's funny because um, they are like, "Oh, let's get him for the boss." You know, we'll, we'll you know, we'll, 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 we'll pay our boss tribute by whacking this guy, and they actually electively choose a spear gun over a shotgun. <laughs> He's like, "I can get a well, shotgun." Well, I think I'm it's too. To get the spear gun. Well, well, I think it's for two reasons. One, I'm sure the sentencing would be lighter since it wouldn't be using an illegal firearm. The right. spear gun, as a, as a tool for sportsmen. Is probably right. com- perfectly legal, but then two, I believe it's also the spear gun is closer because like they have to go back to their office to get the secret oh, yeah, shotgun. Right. But oh no no, my brother has one. My brother-in-law has one. They live around the corner. Let's go. <laughs> I just love it because like they they drag him off into the corner and they're like, "What should we do? Should we you know should we beat the shit out of him?" They're just like, "I can't even deal with these guys." Like just you know like you're you're. You know, your punishment is that you shot yourself in the foot with a spear gun. And you see his oh, foot. Oh, they linger the... on that shot, Oh, too. yeah. And you see, like, a wooden sandal with a spear hanging out of it. It looks fucking brutal. Well, it's also a great way to do a practical that practical effect as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the yeah. sandal that they established very early on gives you a lot of visual cover. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great gag and also very, very grim. There's also another feet related thing. And this this comes before then one of the one of the bosses. I'm not sure what's happening. I don't know if this is like a trial or or a medical treatment, but like he's on his belly, he has his feet up in the air and they're like burning embers or something on the middle of both right. of his feet. And I almost think like I think I believe it was um Delhi fight in Hiroshima where remember they're like oh that damn priest Oh, it yes. runs in pain, and it, it's like it almost looks like they're getting tattooed or something. But you don't like. It looks like there's some burning going on. I was like, is that the same thing? There must be some ritual that I don't know. We don't have our hands around. Um, that must be going on there because uh, I think it's Otomo, the guy. Um, actually, to backtrack a little bit, the introduction of the elder Otomo in this is played by Joe Shishido, the guy with the puffy cheeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a huge. Huge, huge Japanese star. He was in a ton of the uh, Nakatsu um, Yakuza gangster noir films. Um, he was in some Seijin Suzuki movies like uh, Branded to Kill and uh, Cruel Gun Story. And he's a fascinating actor, and having him in the movie gives it a lot of weight, gives a lot of heft. Um, he kind of The character kind of comes out of nowhere, but I feel like they had the opportunity to cast 
Joe Shishido, and they didn't want to waste it. So they kind of <laughs> shoehorned him into like an elder Yakuza dude role. It was one huge thing that stood out to me watching this uh, that surprised me, but I think the way they do it, 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 it's effective, but it's just not what I expected, is you have a, a fleeting shot in the beginning of uh, Shozo Hirono. I, I hesitate to call him the hero, but he's kind of the main character of most of these uh, yeah. pictures in this five-film cycle. And of him in jail, which is where he was, where he left off at the end of the last film. But he doesn't, you know, actually have scenes of dialogue and becomes... I wouldn't say central, but he becomes part of the plot as a supporting character until 30 minutes in, uh, more or less. And I thought, yeah, like, yeah. wow, what a smart choice. I mean, that is like, uh, I don't know, in The Godfather, not having Al Pacino show up for, like, a third of the picture. Yeah, it's like, um, and also I feel like it was a really smart decision to have him, like, you know, he sentenced to seven years. And he has to serve them. Like, he's mm-hmm. been in and out of jail so many times in these movies. And it's like, he can't get another free ride. He can't get another pardon. He can't get another, you know, uh, guarantee ship from another Yakuza boss. Like, he's got to serve those seven years. And the memoirs, too, I feel like is a little, like, cathartic allegory for the screenwriter. Um, oh, I love the I love the imagery of him writing his memoirs in there. And one of the things I love, uh, uh, one of the things I do love about it is one, I think it plants a false lead because my thought is, oh, he's so done with this, he's ready to name names and turn mm, states. Yeah. Now, turns out that's not the case, but it still serves a purpose because it so effectively communicates. He has had seven years to ruminate on the nature of violence and his business. And the way he's been spending his life, which makes his eventual turn, it 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 makes his turn at the end uh, much more believable and gives it much more of a flow from yeah. what we've seen in these other movies. And also, like the the nature of um, of everything that starts the movie off is that you know you, you can see that he's a ex military dude and everything from the war, and you know Bundesugwar was probably I don't know maybe uh, late twenties, early thirties. I'm guessing here. But in all actuality, his character could have been, you know, 18 at the start of this because they were co-opting such young people towards the end of World War II at that point in Japan. So it makes sense that by 1964, he could still be a very, like, you know, fiery young man at heart. And um, going from a culture of violence from the war to being a Yakuza and in and out of prison, um, you think on the one hand, like, he's, you know, hanging up his hat and he's all done with this. But on the other hand, when he gets out, and confronts uh, Takeda, he's like, ah, you know, I'm not going to go out like that. <laughs> sure. Matt. Yes, yeah. Um, it. You look at everything that happens in, in, in this picture, and you have, I like that you have a lot of fresh faces in this one, mm-hmm. and they have different ideas of what the Yakuza is, but you also get the feeling like in some of the other films, the Yakuza had become very powerful, very, uh, very sloppy, very rich. And by the time in this one, which, which, um, I believe, you know, is somewhat contemporary to when this came out, like in the early seventies, yeah, uh, like nine, it, 10 years. Yeah. You, you watch it and, and you go, wow, like the, the, the Yakuza are a real shell of what they used to be. They're not, uh, the police are still hitting them hard and fast and more effectively than than ever before, even in and then in the last film, police tactics. And you feel, I don't know if it felt bad for the Yakuza members exactly, but it's like 
anytime the cops come, it's like really like, oh shit. When compared to like maybe the first or the second, the first few pictures in the series, it's like, yeah, because I can take care of them, no problem, or pay off the cops or give them a, a thing of sake and they won't do anything. Like, yeah, they can... you, you, you just feel like they're roaches on the run about to get squished. Yeah, they can they can wheel and deal their way out of it in the you know first, second, third, and fourth movies. And um, the one thing I one of the many things I like a lot about this film is that in the first act you have a police raid and it feels like a continuation from the fourth film. And actually, to the point where they find like the the find they they find the pistols in like the floorboards of the roof. Oh, and the uh, hidden in the hot water bottles to protect. Yeah, them the hot the water bladder yeah. things, and um, and I was like, yeah, that's like they they are really like both sides are trying very much to evade and capture one another. And um, I actually used to confuse that scene with police tactics because it was so emblematic of a police tactic. <laughs> um, and again, Thrasher, like, you were, oh. oh, sorry, you were going to say something, Thrasher. Well, I did. I did have a comment. So that's one of the things is, is that you know we, we talked about how like they're still recruiting young men and having a hard time reining them in. But one of the the running things throughout this movie is that whenever they whenever we see the young men that they're recruiting or that are trying to get in with the yakuza. They're all kind of they're all kind of these like sort of sad sack milk sops. And <laughs> I don't think and I don't think that that's meant to like to to mock these young men, but I think it's it's to communicate something that has to do with the changing of the times because all of the all of the established people in the uh, Yakuza who who came out of the war generation, too, they, yeah. Yeah, they had to be hard. That was that mm-hmm. was the only way to survive. They had to be these hardened types. But the the new the 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 children of this generation, the post-war generation, they haven't needed they haven't had that survival pressure. They have they didn't need to become hardened to survive. Uh you know, they they grew up in they grew up in better times in that that post-war environment, which is why they're not ready to be killers right off the bat. That's why they have to be built up to that point and why so many of them aren't good aren't good at it. I mean, that's that's a real thing is most of them aren't good at aren't good at the violence when they get into it. And and uh, also most of them are, are hesitant to even start multiple times. They're lined up for a perfect a perfect hit job. And then they panic. Like, if that one guy literally, literally uh, wets his pants yeah. rather than pull the trigger at that one boss yeah. at that at that festival. And I believe it was a Ichioka um, assassination where you actually see the guy pissing himself. And like you said, you know, they have a clear shot at him. They're ready to go. And don't they, um, they drug the guy's family. Yeah, they, they Just... need, they, it's kind of a rogue operation. They need a, 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 they need a weapon. And so there's this scene where like, yeah, the the guy's family, they're all eating together and they have these giant bottles of Coca-Cola, which, which I love the giant bottles of Coca-Cola, but I also like love that the reason yeah. they're so big is the idea is you split it among your whole family. Right. And the wife's talking about, oh, isn't, isn't, isn't this young man you've hired so nice? He knows how much you like cola. <laughs> Look at all the cola you brought up. Yeah, and it turns out it's drugged with sleeping pills because they <laughs> cut to what at first you think is a comical scene of the whole family just lying on the ground holding empty glasses. And at first I thought, oh, they drank so much, the family just passed out on a sugar high but they linger on it so much like oh sh- shit they poisoned what the fuck is going on but right. you no know, it turns out they're just drugged and they did that so that they could raid the guy's secret cash box yeah. to buy an american 45 automatic uh, the which they, they call also, out by name yeah they emphasize that like oh we're gonna get an american 45 all right 
Well, and, well, it's it's that whole thing of how like Western objects denote status. Like whenever you multiple times in the movie, people are bribed with cigarettes. It's always Paul Mall cigarettes. Yeah, Paul Mall, which was or a, Lucky Strike, um, whiskey is always Johnny Walker, um, and that's something that's carried on to even today. I remember at a lot of the restaurants I've worked at, we'd have tour buses and. You know, we'd have a bunch of Japanese dudes, and a lot of them would get like you know rare steaks and Johnny Walker, Johnny Black on ice. Like it was like a very consistent thing. But um, yeah. It's, 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 sorry. No, go on. Um, it's it is kind of a disturbing scene though when after he drugs a family and he goes, like, anyone ever die off of like sleeping pills? Like ah, they'll be fine, you know. And you don't really. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked. I'm kind of shocked we didn't hear about that later that some people were found dead in that house. Right. It's strangely enough, it's the one plan that doesn't go pear shaped in this entire f- five part series. So many plans that have gone so bad <laughs> after so many you know, movies. Let me talk about the the Japanese kind of uh, fetish fetishizing. I can't speak uh, the you know Western and American culture. You still see that a lot there today. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been there in fifteen years, but when I was there in two thousand six, as I talk about way too much in this program. Um, <laughs> We, uh, you know, like Snoopy stuff was everywhere. Popeye stuff was everywhere. So much Western stuff. And at first I thought like, this is weird, but I I kind of was like, well, gee, they have a better respect for like Western 1930s animation than they do in the United States. That at least it's being merchandised. At least they're they're celebrating like Popeye's 70th anniversary or something in Japan. It's like, and we're not even doing that in this country. What the hell? Like, uh, (laughs) That that's true. Like I I love classic Fleischer Popeye cartoons. Mm-hmm. Wish I could watch them. Wish I could buy them. But they're just not available in the uh, states. They they they've re-released some of them, but they're so out of print and in such a limited run that they've gotten quite expensive. The the one I used to have on videotape was the Popeye uh, Arabian Nights. Oh, that's sort a of special with the 3D background. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. The backgrounds like uh, live action sort of forced perspective stuff and it, it looks uh even the Fleischers had a lot less money than Disney you know it looks uh, to my eyes just as good as some of that trick photography in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves yeah the Fleischer ones are awesome oh so something something else that you know when we when we talk about like the, the changing of the times um there, anytime there's a hit there are so many innocent bystanders and so many opportunities for collateral damage which really had me nervous during that hit at the festival oh, um yeah. and and i and that's in part because like uh to, uh the, japan's now built itself back up the yakuza are no longer operating in bad neighborhoods because those bad neighborhoods have been built up into good neighborhoods and and these prosperous shopping districts and like like this this is the one film where they're bothered where they when they have weapons when they bother trying to hide them because for the first time they're surrounded by eyes who can right. report them to police and police who could actually uh, make a direct response yeah and um like, uh, this is the first time you actually see a very violent incident with an innocent bystander. Like, a woman gets shot in the leg, I think, at, uh, towards the end mm. with, um, I think it's Maki Hara's assassination. Um, and thankfully, because Maki Hara is just the worst Judas character in this whole series. And um, you'd think that after these five films, he would have calmed down or or dialed his <laughs> shifty shit back. And no, he does not. And one thing that cracks me up is that... Um, I believe uh, Yamamori, who's retired but still in his ear, 
Yamamori and I think um, I think one of the Otomo guys are saying like you know if you um, if you target uh, the seniors in the company they don't really like having Matsunara as the chairman of the Tensai group and then Makihara's like oh and then they say like you know this isn't some half-assed plan and you're like it's <laughs> such a half-assed plan like this is a, another horrible idea that you guys have and you know he's all ears and then Makahara gets his, uh, you know, his just desserts, as they say. Uh, towards the end of the film, I, I was quite moved by, it's something they do over and over again in the series, where it's a montage of still images, and you have the narration by, excuse me, and you have the narration by Satoshi Tetsu Sakai, but it, it, it really puts it in perspective. It it mentions, you know, Shouzer Hirono has, has been part of the Yakuza for over 25 years and you have felt that progression of, of both his character of, of how the Yakuza operates as a whole in these different games showing these still uh, images of, of famous shots from the different movies and how many and the narration goes on and on and on about how many people have died and how many people uh, are alone and all this stuff because of it and it's sort of uh, you know the classic message of violence but gets violence but that it's done you do have a lot of action in this picture. I think maybe even the most in the series, perhaps. Um, but it's all like assassinations, and it's all, you know, fresh. A lot of young people are dying, and just that it focuses on uh, the death and ends in kind of a somber note. I thought was was kind of surprising and kind of made me look back on the series in a different light because uh, it's not the same as Goodfellas, where it's like, yeah, I'm in the mob. I'm gonna I'm gonna make uh, right. mustard sandwiches and uh, uh, steal a few dice from the pool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I'll make the uh, Sunday gravy for Ma and, and give her a few extra shekels. Yeah, <laughs> a few extra shekels. Yeah. And, um, again, it's another hallmark of the series where it ends with uh, Hirono at a funeral again, and the narration kicks in and it says like um, like Shozo didn't even know the name or recognize the face of the young man whose funeral he went to. Um, but um, I guess before we get to the end. Um, Another thing is that, like, uh, you get the the crazy assassination attempt of Masanara when they're in the car. Um, yeah, the car yeah. thing. And it's got, like, the maps, the, the intercut images of, like, the maps and, and um, you know, not Osaka, but whatever part. And um, it's very detailed. And it's like, oh, they evaded, you know, each assassination attempt. And then when they pull up, it's just such a messy, loud, you know, it just bludgeons you with this, like, wall of gunshots and people writhing around and ironically it's one of the more cleaner assassination attempts in the series well i mean it's one of the most successful certainly but we i mean we see the inside of that car painted with blood i mean a big squib mm -hmm. goes off covering most oh, of yeah. the passenger side uh windshield i mean it's it's brutal and, and just like you can also tell that that's sort of a a, a thing of opportunity because they've been tailing the car doing the goodwill handshakes between the different factions for all day and then it just happens to get stopped by a train and they just oh, yeah. happen to pull up next to it and say okay you know what? when the train sounds its horn that'll cover up the gunshots let's go nuts and... yeah i feel like it's like um like everything in these movies are like half planned it's like all right we're gonna take out this guy on this day where and when it happens, we're not sure, but we've got guns and we're going to make it happen. Um, like you said, like the train opportunity kind of happened. Like, okay, like, well, here we go. Let's shoot these motherfuckers. And, 
And of course, I think one of the, the last really outright massacre we see in the one where the woman get where the innocent bystander, the woman does get shot in the mm. leg in a very, very, very disturbing shot. Um, it, it all happens because some some of the some of the brash young men are like, hey, let's go take in a movie. And of course, another group of young men see him and there's a shootout as one of the theater. They, they specifically mention, oh, hey, this theater's playing the she-cat. The, uh, the she-cat yeah, she gambler. gambler, yeah. And I, and I looked that up. I think they're making a reference to Wandering Ginza Butterfly 2, She-Cat uh, Gambler, which had been released by Toho, I think, the previous year or the year before. It was a Miko mm. Kanji joint with um, uh, with Tatsuya Umiya. Sony Chiba's in it. Yeah, and Sony Chiba's in it as well. And the, the Wandering Ginza Butterfly movies are awesome. But the poster looks like um, Junko Fuji, who was uh, mm. the Red Peony Gambler. Um and she was in so many movies back then because it takes place in 65 or 64, maybe. And um, I was so conflicted. I thought of the same thing of the Wandering Ginza Butterfly. Um, but not the Butterfly. The Wandering Ginza uh, Butterfly movies um, that were so great. But the, the Miko Kashi movies were terrific. But yeah, they call it in the version I saw, they call it the She Gambler. And I was like, shit, that doesn't narrow it down. There's so many like women gambler <laughs> Yakuza movies from this time. Um but yeah, and then like the dude sprawled out on the on the marquee on the poster, you know, with the with the you know nice red blood just you know gurgling all over it. It's a very uh, terrific evocative image and tantamount to Fukasaka's very subversive tendencies. You know, having a movie poster stay a Yakuza movie poster stained with blood <laughs> from his characters is so cool. And the, and then and then it's you know then the movie sort of in, in a way let let much less directly than in the previous two films is still commenting on Vietnam that it's two great powerful forces go to war it's just the young men who are going to die and suffer but that is finally what gets uh, Hirano to decide to just retire to just peaceably retire and step away from the whole mess and like they offer him the same deal like uh, Matsunara comes at him and says like hey you can come to Hiroshima and Korea. If you just hang up your code, if you just, you know, walk away from it, we can all coexist, we can run our corporation. And he's like, hell no. Like, you know, you're going to come at me with this. He's like, I don't know anything else. And then um, one thing I've locked in on watching the series again is the relationship between uh, Hirono and Takeda. Because you see it in, in volume three, it really flares up to a tension point. And then by the end of four, they're kind of these uneasy allies, you know parlaying while they're um, about to serve their long, cold prison sentences. And then here again, like Takeda and Hirono are just like, you know, we're actually on the same page here. Um, I believe there's a point where Takeda says to Hirono, he's like, this guy was sharp and he got shot by people much younger than him. And they're so much younger than us. And it's like, you can tell that really like, you know, sets in with Hirono when he hears that. What about the look of uh, Hirono in this picture pretty late in the film where he has uh, just the one eye? Yeah, they don't really explain that, do they? No, but it's a striking image. I like how it looks. Oh, no, it, look, it looks great. And I, did, and I did wonder, I did seriously wonder what, what that was because we never see him attack. We never see him with a tussle. He just sort of He just sort of has it when he's released. The only thing I could think of is maybe because i mean everybody's planning for what they're going to do when he's released and yet it still takes a couple of characters by surprise so i'm wondering if we're supposed to infer from that eye patch 
that he was released a few months early for medical reasons. Yeah, because they transfer him from mm. um, Abashiri to Sapporo prison, and they release him like um, like a little bit earlier than anticipated to evade the the, the gangster welcome thing. And um, maybe it's a symbolic thing, like in the land of the blind, the one a man sees, or something like that. Or uh, maybe just got pink eye because prisons are gross. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> but um, it's a fascinating thing because you have so much going on, and it really maintains your attention, and it really keeps you captivated. And our main character is essentially absent for like eighty percent of the film's screen time. And um, it's kind of like a they they do really good incorporating older characters, like you see Yamamori. Um, the dude who gets whacked in the beginning, I think, um, Sugita, his daughter, becomes a mistress of um, Matsuhara, the guy that becomes a head of the Kinsei Corporation. So that was an interesting turn, having like an active woman in the role of the Yakuza. Um, yeah, really fascinating chapter all around. There's a lot of neat stuff going on. And again, some moments of humor, like when they bring in the new recruits. And they're like, why did you come here? And he's like, they said you beat us to a pulp if we didn't come. <laughs> and the spear gun thing is hilarious, too. And also the gossiping, like the meeting between, um, I think it's like Makahara and um, a couple of the other dudes. And uh, before they adjourn, they're like, don't say anything to anyone. And then the next frame, you have the narrator saying, everyone knew what they were talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, yeah, overall, I like this picture, and I, I I think it does, as good as the ending was to Police Tactics, the ending of final episode, uh, pardon the pun, you know, just really does feel final. It does wrap things up nicely. It's not a completely clean ending. You know, people still live their lives. There's still going to be violence and stuff that happens. But um, I, I was expecting this to be kind of a light epilogue, and instead, still quite a lot of plot and characters happen here. And oh, yeah. uh, they're throwing I, I, a lot at you. They, they are every single film in the series. Um, they they do such a thing, and you know, after watching this last one, it makes me want to go back and watch the first one again because I think I'd pick out different things now, having lived with these characters over these past uh, month and change. Uh, and with Hirono, with that look, with the the eye, it reminded me of a a pretty um, moving quote from uh, the character of uh, oh. Let's, Pull this up in my notes here. A moving quote from the character of, of Jimmy from, from the motion picture uh, by Bob Saget, Dirty Work. They say, in the land, of the land of the blind, the man with the one eye is king. Well, in the land with the skunk, the man with half a nose is king. There's really not much more to say except that. <laughs> true, true. There's, um, there's a couple of good quotes, too, where um, after they, um, they get after the dudes in Hirono's gang get uh, chastised for bringing in new soldiers, he says, like, even even foot soldiers have their pride, um, mm. which I thought was telling. It's another emphasis that these movies always have an eye towards the the underlings of the operation. And it's fascinating that Hirono's got a, you know, a very small family. He's got probably, like, you can tell he's probably got, like, 10 or 12 dudes on call. And, um, however, like, when... He's, you know, when he's going to be released from prison, um, everyone's kind of shaking their boots, like, oh my god, Hirono's getting out, like, what are we going to do? And even see, like, they cut to, like, skirmishes amongst 
different um, family factions because of his eminent release. You know, like I think the narration says that like um, news of Verona's release, like you know, boils the blood of the underlings, and you know they're they're wailing on each other and stuff like that. Um, it's fascinating because um, through these movies, he's worked his way through so much of the yakuza machinations, but never became like a Yavamori or a Makahara or an Otomo. He's just kind of, he's almost like a blue collar Yakuza boss in a way. Um, and in a world where there is no honor in humanity, as the title would suggest, he's, he's maintained some honor and maybe a tiny bit of, tiny bit of humanity. And I think it's echoed in this movie because, like, all the higher ups are always talking about the importance of as it, clearly they're talking about honor. I, the, the the subtitles I watched uh, uh, rendered it as chivalry, but but he does seem to be the only character that at least has a clear idea of what that means, even if he doesn't always practice it properly. Uh, everyone else, it's just lip service. Yeah, they're they're very shifty. They're very backstabby. Um, it's hard to tell who's fighting for who and who's backing who. Um, like watching it, like Matt, you were saying earlier, like after seeing this, you want to watch it over again. And then for me, after watching it, probably, I don't know, umpteenth times, I'm locking onto all these new things. And it's just such a rich plethora of, of characters and conflicts and, 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 um, and story structure. It's almost like it's Shakespearean in like a, like a Greek tragedy way. It just so happens that it's, you know, Japanese gangsters murdering each other and it's gritty and badass and incredibly uh incredibly uh fascinating so i i would give final battle a sequel yes uh thrasher absolutely this this possibly more so than any other franchise we've done has maintained the highest and most consistent level of quality throughout mm -hmm. the franchise i I have been eternally delighted, shocked, and surprised by this series in all the best ways. Excellent. Yeah, sequel, yes. Um, like you said, I, again, after watching it so many times, I really thought, I, I, I thought they, they were going to run out of steam and they were going to, you know, go off the rails a little bit, and they didn't. They, they uh, Kenji Fukusaku kept it going. No, I kept it going, but you know, made three more movies afterwards. Oh, yeah. Um, fascinating. And I'm glad you guys loved it because, like I said, it would have been a slog if you didn't. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's great to have these chats and reminiscences. Uh, Absolutely. Um, and I, I really hope one day we get legitimate English translations of the original um, books and articles these films are based off of by Koichi Iboshi. I yeah, that would mangled be... that last name. But that, that would really be something, because I want to see, I, I would love to, or maybe even, I should tr just track down a history book of the real Yakuza, but see, like, what stuff can I be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like what they did in Battles Without Honor Humanity, except the guy's name is different, and uh, he shot him five times instead of six or whatever. But right. I mean, just to learn more of the real history and, and all these things, I think, would be good, and there's almost no greater uh, compliment you can give to a movie that is historical fiction, sort of, eh, I don't know, like, there's there's enough there, I think. Yeah. Um, like I, I like I said, like the amount of dedication that goes into storytelling would usually in this series would usually like you is something you'd see in like a fantasy series, not a not a gangster series. And right. the it's so intricate it has to be based on real life. <laughs> so now we're gonna do pitch a sequel. So much to chew on here. What 
came to mind for me is we were talking about Shozo Hirono. When uh, he gets out, he has that uh, bandages. He has the stuff with the eye. How did that happen? And it, it would this movie would would start with a, a close. It, it would do you know kind of with still photos and narration from Satoshi Sakai about all these things, and and then uh, we would have the great great Bunta Sugawara as Shozo Hirono saying he turns to the camera and points at the place where his eye was and says, "There is a lot of uh, story as to how this happened." Let me tell you. And it, it's a flashback. It's an origin about how, uh, you know, you, you've heard of reared Kipling's, uh, how the leopard lost his spots. Well, this is how Hirono lost his eye. And and you see the story and uh, to, to kind of screw with the audience at the end, right when you're about to find out how he loses the eye, uh, the film kind of cuts out and uh, Hirono turns towards the right, looks right at the camera, winks with the one eye that's visible and says, well, we've, uh, we're not a film for now, but I'm sure you'd love to see how I'd lost this eye. And it's, uh, it's all just a shameless setup for the uh, Hirono Eye Trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that. And, and I would call with... Battles oh, no, with... Step on you. <laughs> battles without honor or... Humanity. <laughs> I was going to say battles without honor or this human's eye, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, Thrasher, what do you have? All right. So, uh, so uh, the world of the acquisition is reeling from the end of this, uh, the end of this movie. We transition to the seventies and then a troop of traveling acrobats, uh, ac- acuba- acrobats <laughs> uh, shows up. That's right. Cirque du Soleil is coming to Japan, and the Yakuza want a cut of the concessions. Uh-huh. So uh, you know, uh-huh. they start, you know, and at first they figure, oh, well, they start courting uh, uh, Cirque du Soleil and their agents and whatnot to try to get them to book shows and Yakuza-owned theaters and things like that. And people are like warning, uh, are warning Cirque du Soleil not to go, not to go into bed uh, with the Yakuza to go to legitimate theaters. Uh, and it finally all uh, blows up in a three-way gang war between the. A three-way war in the streets between the Yakuza, uh, the uh, people from Cirque du Soleil, who who are real spry athletes and they can fight, uh, and also <laughs> the uh, the Tokyo police. And so it's it's this crazy three-way battle, and Cirque du Soleil are doing all these wild circus stunts and backflips and like pantomime acts to confuse uh, people on both sides. And then, of course, it turns out when it's all when all is said and done. Uh, Cirque du Soleil has vanished and the, both the Yakuza and the police realized this was all a cover. Cirque du Soleil is a criminal organization. They stole the regalia of the Emperor of Japan using all this as cover. So, you know what, you son of a bitches? The police and the Yakuza team up and it ends with a sequel hookup where they go to the West to track down Cirque du Soleil and get the Emperor's, uh, get the emperor's uh, finery back. Yes. I can just gonna... picture like like a Kenji Fukasaka, like Elaine Delon co-production. And and we're gonna call it Battles Without Honor or Zoomanity. <laughs> All right. I'm down. Alex. All right, so my pitch of sequel is um after everything that goes on, Hirono hangs up his coat. He officially retires from the Yakuza. 
he tries to live a quiet life. However, um, you know, the Yakuza film business is still booming. So what happens is that Toei Studios, the various studios that employ Kinji Fukusaku, employ him as a script consultant for very the varied Yakuza films that are going on. So in a kind of like a meta, like, you know, cross-examination of, of genre, culture, and film, um, Hirono plays himself being a script consultant for a director not unlike Kenji Fukusaku, maybe played by Fukusaku, where he's a consultant making all these um, uh, Yakuza films and directing the cast as to what to do. But what happens is that Hirono's actually got, like, hardcore PTSD because he's, like, murdered a lot of people, survived World War II, and has been through a lot of fucked up shit. And eventually he starts to lose his mind, and he can't tell the line between fact and fiction. And then eventually is driven to despair and kills himself on camera. Mm. And this is after doing a few Yakuza films, and then his live suicide becomes the highest-selling Yakuza film of all time. And it's called... Mm. The real Yakuza papers, real spelt with two E's. A Charlie Kaufman I like production. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Great. Um, now we're moving on to what you watch. And I watch something I think a lot of people have been watching with uh, COVID-19 being, being stuck at home, being self-quarantined. Uh, this has been one of Netflix's highest rated documentary uh, miniseries. Oh, no. I'm talking about Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness. Uh, have either of you fellas heard about this one? I've seen caught, one full episode. I caught, gl- I caught glimpses of it uh, the other day, uh, but I don't know much about it. It sounds crazy, though. It is. I, I don't really want to spoil a lot of it, but I, I'll just say in short, I think all of the main people portrayed in this are assholes in different ways. <laughs> uh, there are no good guys no no as, as the tagline said for the steven soderbergh feature film adaptation of the bbc series traffic no one gets away clean and no it's yakuza or tiger keepers uh yes and there i will say this it's extremely well produced and it's entertaining it give it a shot past the first episode because i think it doesn't really start with its best materials and it does a good job at the end of each episode. And the thing is, uh, it's like seven episodes of eh, between like 45 minutes to an hour a piece. So it's not, it makes it, it's a, it's long for a documentary, but it doesn't feel long because of how it's produced. And, um, I don't know. I thought this was light entertainment going in, but it gets darker and more disturbing the more you get into it. And, uh, it does a good job of ending each episode with the new, revelation that makes you question everything you've seen before Mm. um some of the participants have complained about how they're portrayed in this but to that i say don't be involved in a documentary then do you think they're gonna i mean (laughs) a documentary like any kind of film is going to be edited right yeah stuff that's live on tv is edited if unless you're doing like a simina virate of a guy's day in which he takes a yeah yeah, I mean, everything is manipulated to something because that's part of uh, the film medium. So right. I I think of uh, Werner Herzog making the, the revelation that, that surprised many people where, oh, I forget which movie of his, the documentary of his it is, but, he's, but it's like a really well-composed shot with this guy with all his family and candles in the background. And like, it's complete bullshit because like he, he just moved things around to get a good shot. And, and to tell his story, 
And people were like, it's a documentary. You have to film exactly like how things are in his house. And it's like, nah, no. Yeah, like, I mean, I've, the naivete of people have, um, and this right. just isn't me being like a highfalutin movie person, but like the naivete people have about documentaries is kind of astounding because it's like when someone says, like the jarring line that you see in the commercial, like, do you think they got that on the first take? Like, no, like they had them say yeah. that a few times. They asked that question a few times. Like, you know, they make you walk to your car three or four times and open the door to get that candid shot. Like, eh, it's all the obfuscation of truth and image is a very, well, very big thing. Well, even that you usually have on the order of magnitude of 10 times more footage of each subject shot than you ever use. Yes. So you oh, are yeah. still only At getting least. the best and the what feeds into your themes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's yep. the big thing, the, the, the theme, right? You could take, I mean, if I was teaching a documentary editing course or, or something, I would give each student like the same, I don't know, 10 hours of footage and say, you have to cut like a 10-minute thing out of this. And I bet you'll get 10 very different films. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think one of the funniest things I learned in editing was um, seeing the re-edited trailer of The Shining. Where, where someone comedy cut one? Yeah, where someone cut it like a romantic comedy. Shine, yeah. Going up uh, on Strawberry Hill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With Peter Gabriel. It's, it's brilliant. It's hilarious, but it's also yeah. brilliant. Because it totally works. And it's just the, the power of editing. I mean, you could take this podcast episode and make us all look like serial killers and that, like, you got three guys talking about manipulation and murder and blah, blah, blah. Yes, it, look like. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, what oh, the, what's... <laughs> So on. one of the best examples of this, uh, Charlie Brooker, who you might yeah, know is yeah. the writer of uh, the, the zombie movie The Dead Set, he did a show for the BBC called Screen Wipe that really broke down mm -hmm. the sort of dirty truth of television. And there's an episode all about reality TV, documentaries, and the news, and basically any time TV tries to present something as truth or reality. And there's a great bit where they... they they recruited some the type of people who appear on reality TV shows and they recorded a fake reality TV show. And what they did is uh, Charlie Brooker told a joke to all the people just as part of the normal flow of the day. They then replayed that same joke, edited three different ways to make it look like using mm. the same footage recorded at the same time. Uh, often in the same sequence to show mm. that you can get a com you can create a completely different mm. narrative uh, just with some basic editing. It's it's very revelatory. Yeah. That's fascinating stuff, man. The 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 illusion between uh, you know truth and cinematic truth. It's a it's a big deal. Yeah, the the classic example in in, in film school is like some I don't have the guy's name, but it's an early uh, Russian editor, and he it, it's. I don't think it was even footage. I think it was just still pictures. And one is of a, a Russian man looking very stoic. And then it cuts to an orange or something. And like, and the, and the audience thought like, oh, that man, look at his face. He's hungry. And then they take the same photo and it cuts to a baby. And like, oh, what a good father. He's concerned about his baby. And like nothing has changed. It, it's just all about the, it, it's, it's not just the cuts, but also what you're thinking is happening between the cuts. It's a similar phenomenon to what you, when you read a comic books, and what happens oh, yeah. between the panels, right? Or what happens uh, when you turn one page to the next page? Well, that's what the story so, is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's not uh, everything you see. 
fascinating. It's called a like it's a, the the work of Chris Marker is fascinating because um, it's one of my favorite movies, uh, um, A Sans Soleil, and it's basically just stock footage of you know people in Dubai and and Japan and stuff like that, mm. and it's just an off-screen narrator reading letters to some unknown correspondent. And it's like this very fascinating, soulful look at like culture and all this other shit, but it's absolutely not based on any narrative truth of any kind, and yet it's a documentary. So, there you go. Mind blown. Uh, uh, Alex, what's something you've been watching? Um, speaking of Netflix, I watched um, Unorthodox. It's a really wild movie. It's what well, movie? It's a miniseries. It's about this girl who was raised in the certain neighborhood of New York. Um, you know, where it's, uh, Jewish families that are like one step beyond Orthodox Judaism. These families are mostly made out of, um, Holocaust survivors to the point where the people raised in these families are like, you know, they don't have any association with the outside world. And, um, you know, like these arranged marriages are almost like, you know, indoctrinated, like, like sex slavery almost. And, um... This girl makes her way out from the neighborhood in New York to um, to Berlin to go to the school of music, and meanwhile, like they are her her arranged husband and her like this like thug of his that's like hired to go track her down, go to Berlin and try and find him. It's a really fascinating film uh, based on a true memoir, and it's really wild because you would associate these stories with people who would escape like you know, like religious cults or something like that. Meanwhile, it's all going on in, you know, certain neighborhoods in New York. Um, so, yeah, Unorthodox is pretty wild. Um, as a more of a fun anecdote to that, I also watched John Carpenter's Ghost to Mars for the first time. Mm. And that was a lot of fun. That was great. I, I, I've I never seen it before. I like Pam Greer in that picture. Yeah, and Ice Cube, is, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, and... I feel like um, John Carpenter and um, Brian De Palma both had like Mars movies at the same yes. time. It was very weird. Mission to Mars. Lots yeah. of people did. Although I believe Mission to Mars is technically based off a Disney ride. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's but a very loose right. connection oh, in, in Tomorrowland. Or was it Epcot? I think it was Epcot, but I'm not 100% that, sure. That, 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 that sounds right. It's been a while. Like, it's the loosest connection possible. And I mean, of course, there was Disney just. Kevin Bacon. And the the space probe that killed people. Oh, there was also like I think like Red Planet. Oh yeah, that's right. Red Planet. And uh, oh, there's also what virus? But no, that was that was that wasn't that was Mars. Based, no, oh, yeah. based on that a comic cool book with Jamie Lee Curtis, and it, it came out around the same time. That yeah, was that's... part of that was filmed in my hometown. Nice. Did you try to become an extra in that show, or no? I I didn't have the opportunity, unfortunately. The it was it was filmed on like they they filmed it uh, like a lot of the interiors were on a decommissioned oil tanker that had been towed into the the Norfolk Harbor, and that's uh, where they did a lot of those interiors. I think that was a movie where there was like a two and a half hour cut that was like a masterpiece that no one saw, <laughs> in like the truncated like version we all saw. It was like eh, all right, but I liked the crappy version I saw. I thought it was fun. One film that has a lot of cuts, allegedly, but only one has ever come out, was Supernova. Mm. At one point, Francis Ford Coppola reshot like half of it. Um, they used like, like 
there was like a sex scene in which they used CG to make it so it was different characters having sex because they didn't want to refilm the footage. It's this <laughs> real clunky uh, kind of superimposition of, um, oh. of things. James Spader, I think, is in that show. Uh, Walter Hill direct, directed it, I think. One of the directors, yeah, Walter yeah. Hill. Um, cool. Uh, yeah, no, a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff out there. Um, Thrasher, what have you been watching? So, and and forgive me if, if I have mentioned this before, because everything is kind of becoming a blur with uh, with the quarantine and, and, and whatnot. But um, oh, yeah. uh, but I finally managed to track down, because now it's widely available, something that lots of my friends throughout, uh, throughout my high school and college years kept talking up to me. And that is the 1986 made-for-TV movie uh, Mr. Boogity. Which was apparently aired originally on the Magical World of Disney, and then it was rerun several times on the Disney Channel. I never saw it growing up, but so many of my friends and contemporaries were like, no, Mr. Boogity was great, and it was scary, and it was like, um, and, I, and, I finally, and I finally seen it. I don't think it's any of those things, but I can totally understand why, if you were a kid when it first came out, you would feel that way. Um, <laughs> And apparently it was also meant to be a pilot for a series that never got made, although it did get a sequel, Bride of Boogity. Wow. I, I only know it because when Disney Plus came out, they did a, a, a good thing on, on Twitter where for, I don't know, like every five seconds for like two days, they kept on posting a new title that was going to be available on Disney Plus on watch. And a lot of it is this made-for-TV crap like Mr. Boogity. And for some reason, a hashtag got trending Take the Mr. Boogity Challenge, where when you get Disney Plus, the first thing you should watch is Mr. Boogity. So there is oh, a oh to mess with their algorithms. Yes, and so and I think it, it was to try to get them to finance a Mr. Boogity three or something, perhaps. But um, <laughs> and maybe that'll come someday. I don't know. But like there was a disproportionate amount of uh, Mr. Boogity talk in in the Twitterverse. Ah, I love that. And like it's not that good. It's kind of plodding. Sean Astin is, or John Astin is in it as Neil Witherspoon. Of course, TV's Gomez Ooh. Adams. He's yes. great, but they don't they don't give him much to work with. Despite that, there are some bits that are kind of legitimately creepy in that way that only cheap special effects filmed on video can be creepy. Uh, and there is also every now and then there's a really clever bit of production design because like the parents work for a novelty company and so there's lots of dumb visual gags but there's a bit where uh where john astin is neil witherspoon the head of the lucifer falls historical society um <sighs> reads them the history of their house and he brings up this huge weighty tome and he opens it and it's a pop-up book but then when they go into the flashbacks of this historical story he's telling them, it's all people in period dress, but all the backgrounds are made to look like they're part of a pop-up book. <laughs> it's actually good. really clever production design during that sequence. I think I confused that with the, the there was a boogeyman made for TV movie, I think from the same period. Um, or maybe, uh, maybe I'm thinking of Mr. Boogity. I don't know. Well, I mean, you could also take the Mr. Boogity challenge, and then we can do the whole series uh, on sequel there cast. There we go. Have a sequel. Exactly. That's that's true. We'll have to. Perhaps a Boogity will will beat out such uh, favorites expanded, we haven't done as the uh, X Men movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
How did we not do the X Men movies yet? I still don't quite understand that. Because we're still not sure if they're done yet. <laughs> They'll never be done. New New Mutants oh. is still technically supposed to come out, uh, and then who knows? There could be another one in the trunk. That's going to be like a Hulu. That's going to be a Disney Plus or a Hulu premiere. Yeah, hypothetically, there's still a third uh, a third Deadpool in the works. So. I feel like that would be like uh, mm. you said earlier. It'd be like Saw. Star Trek and Star Wars, like the the fatigue <laughs> of all those three rolled into one. We what we might have to do is just agree to only do the core ones. I, I think that's the, the thing. It. Yeah, just it separate. Is the trick like? Uh, and speaking of, of fatigue, next week we're gonna do one of our episodes. I call them a catch-up episode. I think you have a better name for them, Thrasher. Um. If I had a better name than ketchup, I don't recall it. <laughs> it's better It's better than filler, let's put it that way. So what we're going to talk, years and years ago on the show, we discussed the Kevin Smith Viewers Universe movies, and one just came available on Amazon Prime, so hell, we're going to watch it. This is 2019's Jay and Silent Bob reboot. <laughs> if you can believe it, Kevin Smith's original film, Clerks, was uh, done 26 years ago. Ooh. 26 years ago. I feel old. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and and Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back, you want to feel really old. That one came out in 2001. <laughs> I had just started, uh, was in my first uh, or second year of college at that point. And yeah, it's to watch these men who well, were in like their 30s or something doing those other movies. Now they're like in their late 40s. Wow. It's uh, how long of the tooth will it feel? You know, we... I, I, I spoke about it briefly to Nathan Rabin. We'll have that interview on as part of that show of him talking about his postal and, and Weird Al books. And he touches on Kevin Smith a bit to tie into that episode because um, we did the interview first. But yeah, to see what we think of Zane Silent Bob, not only almost uh, 20 years later, but what we think of as we've gotten older, what we think of those characters. Are they funny? Are they annoying? I think that's one of the more interesting things I, I took away from uh, from watching this film. And to see what we'll we talk be. about it next episode will be interesting. Mm-hmm. I think we'll incline to the latter. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> but what did you say, Thrasher? You were gonna? Well, I would say, are they gonna are they gonna have a guest spot on the Flash again? Wait, they, what? They did? Yeah, a season or two ago on the Flash, there's an episode. Yeah, there's an episode that begins in the aftermath of a robbery at like this this like laboratory slash warehouse. And they're interviewing the two security guards, and it's Jay and Silent Bob, and 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 Jay is like describing some crazy supervillain attack that happened, and Bob is just kind of like, like looks like he's about to break into tears. <laughs> I think Kevin and Smith it, may have directed that episode. He's directed a few. He's directed a few of the Flash and a few of Supergirl, I believe, um, and, and maybe some of those other recent DC series as well. I mean, I bet you did. I haven't seen that episode, but I bet you uh, Jason Muses Jay said like, and then they went whacka 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 bam bam boom, and then they did this and this and whoosh and whoosh and whoosh snoogans. <laughs> I remember um, actually the morning of the uh, Nathan Raven interview, I watched uh, Tusk just because I'd, I've been meaning oh, to watch it. Yes. Speaking of long in the tooth. <laughs> exactly. Oh. And, <laughs> um. I was. I was knocked out by how stupid and amazing it was like stupid in a good way um i I thought it was fascinating and incredibly ridiculous and 
I really do think I mentioned this on the last episode, um, not the last episode that the interview. I really do think that after Red State, Kevin Smith has made a career trolling his audience of, of kind of baiting his fans into watching his whatever he's doing and making people suffer through it. But I guess more on that later. <laughs> I'll I'll say this much. I really, you know, you know, Kevin Smith is one of the directors to really use the Internet early, early on with his view mm-hmm. website, the message boards. And then later he could parlay that into Twitter and his podcast stuff. And I, I had the pleasure of seeing one of his uh, movies uh, in, in theaters, which lately to do that, uh, unless you do a fathom events or something, which they might do, you have to show up and uh, you know, on the low end, I think the tickets are like 30 or 40 bucks on the high end. You can pay up to North of 200 bucks. If you want a, a photograph and a, I don't know, a bond with their signature on it. I have no idea what you get <laughs> for, for the, for the premium name, but to, um, you know, he knows his audience. He's making movies for his audience and they'll come out and pay. Oh yeah. No matter what it is. I, I was, the one I saw in the theater was, was um, this kind of weird animated Jane Silent Bob thing called Jane Silent Bob's that. groovy cartoon movie. And the guy next to me in the audience afterwards, like five minutes in of uh, these um, uh, penis and green lantern jokes, mm-hmm shook his head and said, this is so juvenile. I was expecting something more like chasing Amy. And it's like, it's called groovy cartoon movie. I don't know what you're expecting, man. Like in hindsight, chasing Amy was the real anomaly in his filmography. Although do you think we should cover that one too? Or does that not count as view of universe? We uh, already covered it. It does have. Bob Monica. Yes. Yeah. This would have been like over five years ago. I, I have to dig through my archives. Yeah, let's check. Cause I don't think we did that one. Well, technically, um, I am the archivist. Uh-huh. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I mean, speaking of other recent things that Jane Silent Bob made an appearance in, is Jason Mew's theat- or theatrical debut, Madness in the Method, which features mm. um, Jason Mew's playing himself and Kevin Smith also playing himself about uh-huh. a comedy crime film that has the last film appearance of Stan Lee. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. It's also streaming on Amazon Prime. I have not seen it, but. Okay. Uh, I think like for a lot of people our age, you know, um, you know, Clerks and Mallrats and Chasing Amy all came out of a very formative period. I mean, I remember Mallrats a million times and Chasing Amy a million times and Clerks a million times. So, you know, like, um, um, you know, Kevin Smith definitely has has a has a place in my heart, but. Um, is everything he makes a bullseye? Eh, you know, there's some there's some wiggle room there. And it is interesting to see how Kevin Smith has changed in interviews and and stuff. I wouldn't say his writing has changed necessarily, but yeah, before he smoked a lot of pot, and afterwards, and not just that, but before he had the heart attack, he almost died. What? Oh, and during when he smoked a lot of pot. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he still does, but I mean, he also after having a. a a heart attack on stage and nearly dying and then going uh, vegan and losing a bunch of weight. I think that's had some effect on some of his work, uh, as well. So yeah, I don't know. It's for him to have a career that has lasted this long is more than you can say for a lot of other directors that, 
were 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 indie darlings in the early nineties. Yeah. But Dino had a remarkably consistent career. Kenji Fukasaku. <laughs> That's right. His um you can't say it about the battles, but certainly his films had honor and humanity. Exactly. All right, so uh, you can. So next time we'll be talking about Jane Silent Bob reboot. Uh, follow me on Twitter at m a t w b t, and uh, also uh, on Kickstarter, look up uh, President Evil. It's a game I've been working on for Uwe Boll. It just has a Kickstarter, so uh, if you'd like to throw a few dollars towards that, please consider it. Um, otherwise, it'll be coming out soon on Steam for the PC and Mac. Uh, Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, and also the Fading Suns Pax Alexia Kickstarter is still going strong. Uh, there should be a day or two left on it by the time this episode comes out. So definitely check it out if you want to uh, support my work and support one of the best uh, science fiction space opera tabletop RPGs that has ever been written. And Alex. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914. I've got some cool reviews coming out on um, an Afghanistan documentary about propaganda films in the 1970s and 90s. Mm. A whole barrel laughs there. Uh, it'll be posted on Film Inquiry. And if you want to give me some money, that'd be cool. I don't have a Kickstarter, but I have no pride. So having said that, it's been fun. <laughs> All right. So for sequel cast two, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I know how much you like cola. <laughs> Can anyone die from sleep pills? I hope not. <laughs> this is the final episode. Or is it? And the final chapter. Jason Voorhees didn't think so. Never, ever. Neither <laughs> did Freddy Krueger. Is it the final episode, the final chapter, or the final countdown? Well, in Friday the 13th, it's especially galling because the fourth movie is the final chapter, followed up the next year and by part five, A New Beginning. <laughs> and I think if you multiply the final chapter by another prime number, you'll get <laughs> another Friday the 13th movie. You get Freddy versus Jason. Yes, exactly. I'm Unfortunately, the legal rights to Friday the 13th have been tied up uh, over a lawsuit over whether the script was done as a work for hire or not. So, Yeah, because uh, it was inspired by a poster. The, they got Sean Cunningham to make the movie because the post, the post there was a trailer that just said Friday the 13th crashing through a plate of glass, and it looked really cool. <laughs> and, it, and it tested through the roof, and they're like, make a movie. That uh, is some Roger Corman, Ed Wood, self oh, yes. the first bullshit right there. And that's how it all got started. That's that's how the phenomenon got kicked off. Well, and that 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 uh, Cunningham, his career started with Wes Craven, but also before that, like he tried making this uh, kind of wholesome little kids baseball story that didn't really go anywhere. Oh yeah. And, and then he, and then he's like, oh, I'm oh these horror films seem good, and uh, you know you know you, you just never know. Uh, he's oh, yeah. he's made that as Bailiwick, and uh, uh, good for him. So it was funny because I remember thinking, I was like, oh, how cool could that trailer be? Then I see it and you see the, you know, the Friday the 13th crashing through the glass. And I'm like, that is fucking cool. Wow. I want to see that movie. (laughs) And it's, uh, it doesn't sound like it's a holiday, but it should be. There's something about, you know, the Friday the 13th. Yeah. 
I think it inadvertently kicked off the holiday movies, though, with, like, April Fool's Day. Thanks, killing. Yes, Um, exactly. Anything Gary Marshall ever did. Right. (laughs) (laughs) In my new movie, Abba Day, the people like the trees. Oh, oh, we we got a last-minute phone call from Shecky Spielberg. Oh, my God. Yeah, his ringtone sounds just like him. (laughs) Hey, Shecky. Bring, bring. bring. (laughs) What's up, Shecky? Hi, how you doing? Uh, I I couldn't... uh, I heard you were finishing uh, your, your coverage of Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Yeah, and I hear you had a stint in Japan where you tried your uh, hand at your own uh, Yakuza picture. I did. I love me some soy sauce. I call it the Japanese salt. And I go down there and I say, I want to have uh, battles uh, without uh, hamburgers and humanity. That's what I did. Because I'm an American. I love a hamburger. And the, the Japanese, they like hamburgers too. They got a Bur- Burger King and Wendy's, all, all, all those things. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, but can you describe this uh, hamburger-based Yakuza film that you spearheaded? Right, spearheaded like the pickle spears. I I got gotcha. you. It's pretty quick in the uptake there. So I I did the uh, what did I do with it? Alex, you should have some questions too. You just can't be there as an innocent bystander. So I did battles without hamburger humanity. I have uh, the camera extreme close up. You hear something sizzling. It's out of focus. It's gray. You don't know what it is. And then Check after ninety I- minutes, it goes back into focus. It's a burger the whole time. Oh my God, Shecky! I gotta ask you a question. Who's I this? Hear, I hear you paint houses. Oh, we got Al Pacino on the line. Hi, oh, Al. Oh, Hi, Al. Oh, Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Uh, oh. I, I, I do paint houses. I, you know, I have a, something called a trouser snake. I paint houses yellow. It, it, it the color don't always stick. But uh, if your house is white, I'll make it a horse of a, uh, a different color. Are you a rider or a stallion? That uh, you know, I I think I'm more of a more of a pony myself, more of a pony. And I, if you get enough uh, shots of Manischewitz on me, I, I become a bit of a unicorn. Shecky, so, will you be my little pony? <laughs> sure, as long as you don't make me eat the horse apples, I think I'll be all right. I, I, I feel like I shouldn't be on this party line call right now. I, I feel like a voyeur. <laughs> well, oh, I'm running out of rent. Running out of time here. I think I made a se- I made a second one of these Hamboiga pictures. Battle Jimmy. without Ham Hamboiga and Humanity. I think Thrasher, you saw this one, right? Yeah, actually, a Shecky Chiba starred in that one. <laughs> Shecky Chiba, yeah, very good, very good. Shecky Chiba in Battles without Cheeseburger and Humanity, and uh, Shecky Chiba, you you in the move inspired by uh, James Franco's uh, film about uh, Sal about Salmoneo. Uh, it, it has Shecky Cheeseburger on there doing the voice, and you just see the back of his head, but you don't see him. And the reason is I didn't actually film him. I filmed my shoulder and then had him scream into a phone and dubbed over the lines, and nobody knew the difference. They did the same with Frank Sinatra in Cannibal Run 2. Uh, anyhow, except for the close-ups as he gets off the desk. So Battles Without uh, Cheeseburger and Humanity. <laughs> the last one, it was an extreme close-up out of focus. This time, it's an extreme wide shot over Sonny Cheeseburger's shoulder. And what you see that, what you see that, it's in focus, and he's cooking a cheeseburger, and at the end it transitions into it's out of focus. Mm. And, and that was bold, because it ends on a cliffhanger that specifically, by name, sets up three more sequels <laughs> that have yet to be made. It does. A- a- after the after the, boygas, uh, the cheeseburgers are cooked, he... Uh, looks in the fridge and uh, that styrofoam container has three more patties 
And he says, oh, let's make a quintology out of this bag boy. Well, yeah, he specifically addresses one. being in a film. A lot of people thought that that weakened the integrity of the narrative. You don't want to weaken the integrity because as Al Pacino, I mean, Jimmy Hoffa, Kenji Fukasako wasn't in a union. That's why he was able to create so many movies after making all the Yakuza paper shuffle. He's shuffling papers. He's got a lot of cheeseburgers. He bites the cheeseburger like a naughty boy in the, that the grease runs down his chin. And he's a naughty cheeseburger, Fukasako, sunny cheeseburger boy. And then he made more papers and more battles and more honors and humanity. Whoa. I, I can hear what you're doing to your beard, and it is uh, it, it oh. is a... Jimmy Hoff had a beard. They didn't tell you that, did they? Yeah. Yeah, the Irishman. Well, in, in fact, uh, because... Because I'll, I'll put you, Al, I can finish the story for you. Then I really got to leave here. Because when you, when you did when you did the uh, the Scorsese picture, the Irishman, uh, never heard initially it. it was supposed to be a superhero movie about an about a man who eats clovers and Guinness. But that's another story. So when you did uh, Irishman as Jimmy Hoffa. You had a beard in every scene. You say, I, you know, I'm Al Pacino. You're not going to shave off my beard. So a large part of the computer budget not only made old people look younger, it also took off your beard and made you have that baby-ass smooth chin. James Cavill didn't know what he had coming to him, but they CG on my face like a baby. Oh, uh, looking like a baby face. Hey, can you... I, I actually, before we hang up, I, I could really use some coffee. Could you recommend any coffee to me, preferably in the form of a wrap? I might suggest uh, Uncacino. In fact, uh, I, I have a vintage recording of the late Christopher Lee doing a recording of that number, and then and then we'll have to go. <laughs> What's my What's name? name? Uncacino. It's a whole new game. Uncacino, you want creamy goodness. I'm your friend. Say hello oh, to my chocolate blend. blend. Attica, whoa, latte light. This whole trial is out of sight. They pulled it's me hysteria. back in with hazelnuts too. Caramel swirl, I know I it was you. With you. <laughs> Kids from 7 to 17 lining up for my Donkachino. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like he's really here. Ah, we miss you. Yes. Good. This is the longest post-credit bit ever. <laughs> The best. I mean, Stan Lee shows up. Thank Hello, you. true believers. Welcome <laughs> the quarantine. Get a Dunkachino. You can't drink it. Hello, true believers. Have you seen my comic God Walks? It's a hilarious take on my uh, poem about the existence of God that was only published by William Shatner's limited comic imprint in 2007. That's not sound. He stepped his uh, foot in a pile of cream cheese, he called it a foot bagel. The cream cheese got between his toes. It was creepy. Mm -hmm.